You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If I was to begin to tell a story about two sons who struggle with identity, rivalry, and the heritage of their father, you might think that I'm actually talking about Thor and Loki. If you know uh, the story here, you know that these two guys are destined to be kings one day, and they're quite different. One is big and strong and impressive, and the other one's a little more of a swindler, a little bit of a shenanigans are kind of how he does things and you you would you would know one's physically impressive one not so much and you just have this ongoing cosmic battle between these two brothers over the approval of their father Odin uh, one the obvious leader and conqueror the other one more of an insecure trickster and uh, but this also that would also be a good description of Jacob and Esau um, you actually have kind of a similar type of disposition between two brothers who are fighting over the inheritance of their father, the approval of their father, wrestling with their own identity, wrestling with each other. And this is actually a story that is, you know, has, has shown up in many places and many times down through history, the idea of brothers struggling and trying to find their way uh, in the world and find their identity and rivaling each other and at times being reconciled and at times being uh, a warring. And uh, the reason that that story continues to be compelling, even in uh, mythology and even in, um, in Hollywood, is because it, it, it's, it's the reality of the human story. Uh, great stories uh, that you read, great, great novels, great movies, uh, always grab our hearts when they resonate. They give us something similar to the meta-narrative of how the world is. And, uh, and so just notice that, that you'll often find that some of the greatest movies, greatest stories are great because they have some resonance with the Bible story, with the story of redemption. And, uh, and so we're going to see these two brothers today uh, begin to, they're going to re-encounter each other finally. Jacob and Esau are going to encounter each other after 20 years of separation. And uh, these two brothers are going to meet Jacob the trickster, the younger, has been called by God to go home. And this inevitably means dealing with his past, dealing with his past relationships, dealing with his past sins against his father, against his brother particularly, and, uh, and then dealing with his older, stronger, murderous brother Esau. Last time we saw them together back in chapter, I think it was 28, Jacob had tricked his father into blessing him by dressing up like Esau. And, uh, and then Esau, who's now been twice swindled by his younger brother, is on a, ha, makes a public declaration that he wants his brother dead. And so Jacob flees and goes and looks for a wife, but also flees for his life. And he ends up meeting Laban's family. They're related, and he ends up marrying two of their daughters and then ends up marrying a couple of their servant girls. It becomes really chaotic as he struggles and wrestles with Laban. And in the end, he comes out kind of the winner um, but these two guys have been quarreling, and everywhere Jacob goes, he finds someone to quarrel with. He finds someone to rival and wrestle with, and now he's going to have to, by God's decree, go back and face his past. He's going to have to go back and deal with this, except now it's not just two men quarreling over soup or some words of their father, but now there are wives and children at, on the line here. They both have families, and so if these two go to war, it's not just two brothers kind of fighting over relatively insignificant things like soup and blessings, or at least hypothetical blessings. No, now the destiny of the redemptive plan of God is resting in this encounter, because God has made it clear that his promise to redeem the world is going to go through Abraham. 
And it's going to pass from Abraham not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And, and through Isaac, it's then going to come not to Esau, but to Jacob. And Jacob's going to go face his brother, his murderous brother. And the whole redemptive plan of the world is at stake. Because if Jacob is killed, the plan of God comes to an abrupt end. Either God is wrong and has to come up with a plan B, or there's going to have to be some sort of miraculous intervention here. There's going to have to be something surprising that happens. So this, these two chapters have a lot of tension in them, a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are, that are going on. This swindled brother is going to encounter uh, the one who swindled him. And, uh, and Jacob can't go back. He's already made a treaty. They put a line in the sand, so to speak, that Jacob can't go back. They've drawn a line. Laban says, you do not cross this line and come to me. We're going to keep peace with each other. So Jacob has to move forward. He has to move forward in obedience. And forward is hard because forward means digging into his past, dealing with where, what the things that he has done to his family and the things that his family has done to him. So we're going to look at these four chapters, I'm sorry, two chapters in four parts, okay? They're up on the screen. This will help provide a little bit of a roadmap. If you want to get these down, this will help you kind of track through what's a significant portion of Scripture. Uh, verses 1 through 23 of chapter 32, we have Jacob prepares for conflict, okay? We're going to look at that first. And then in verses 24 through 32, we have Jacob wrestles with God, and it's just as intense and crazy as it sounds. We'll dig into that for a few minutes. Then we'll get into chapter 32. And spoiler alert, Jacob is going to reconcile with his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob reconciles in verses 1 through 11 to 33. And then we see that Jacob, while having this encounter with God, still there's a little bit of Jacob in him in verses 12 through 20 as he doesn't quite obey all the way to the extent that he should and puts his family in a precarious situation that's going to result in a pretty substantial tragedy that you'll have to come back next week to hear about. So let's look here at chapter 32, verses 1 through 23, Jacob prepares for conflict. I'm just going to walk through this. So it'll be good if you have the Bible in front of you. Uh, you can read and see the words yourself. Uh, otherwise, you can just listen along. So under Jacob prepares for conflict, we have three basic movements to this section. One is we have an angelic assurance. Then we have inquiry and fear. I'll explain what that means in a minute. And then we have Jacob planning, praying, planning kind of in this sandwich of, uh, of action in response to Esau. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at angelic assurance in verse 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way. He's left this agreement with Laban. He's about to take the first steps into the promised land for the first time in 20 years. And guess what he meets? Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. He called the name of that place Mahanaim. <laughs> Mahanaim which means two camps. So he has his camp, but then it's almost like surrounding his camp is a camp of angels. And considering what he has just gone through, wrestling with Laban, and their rel relatively tense but peaceful parting, um, you can imagine that it would be encouraging to Jacob to get this angelic assurance. And you'll notice this is really interesting as you read your Bibles, is that whenever you see people moving in and out of the promised land, it seems like they have encounters with angels. Jacob had this encounter with the angels, the stairway up to heaven, and angels ascending and descending. You see that happening as he is about to leave the promised land. Then you see them coming in. You're going to see that with, later on with Joshua. As he's about to enter the promised land, he's going to encounter the angel of the Lord. And it's almost like this is an echo back to Genesis 3.24, where there's this cherubim guarding the, the, the way to the Garden of Eden. And it's almost like the promised land of Israel is sort of meant to be a little bit of a picture of the Garden of Eden, the promised land, the place of prosperity and protection of God's people. And there's actually almost an angelic guarding 
of God's promised land. So um, again, you'll just notice that as you read through your Old Testament, that these angelic encounters seem to happen regularly as people are entering or exiting the promised land, which I think somewhat shows just how special this is to God and his people um, and how important it is that he gets this assurance as he's about to step out of one conflict and into another conflict. So verse 3, inquiry and fear. So he sends a delegation now to his brother, a delegation of gifts, just to kind of test the water. Like, I want to have a good gesture to my brother. I want him to know that I'm here for peace. I'm not looking to start a war. Let's just see how he responds. And look what happens in verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have, sent to my, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight, or grace. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We have come to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And by the way, there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So you see the picture there, right? Send a message ahead. I want peace. Let him know that this is not a move of war because Jacob's sizable now. He's got kids. He's got flocks. He looks imposing as he enters the land. He's, it's noticeable. He's sort of a mini nation now stepping in, and the nation that will soon be Israel. And his brother has been prosperous, very prosperous. And so now what you have is he sends this delegation to go, hey, send some messengers, test, my, test the water a little bit with my brother. Where's he at? And they come back with the report of going, we delivered the message, and he's moving quickly this way with what looks like an army. That's essentially what's behind the idea here. 400 men. He's not bringing his wives and kids to come meet you. He's bringing 400 men. And so Jacob's like, oh, man. Oh, man. So he's greatly distressed. A swift move from Esau. No message from Esau at all. Just a, oh, he knows where I am now, and he's coming. And he's coming fast. So you can imagine Jacob is now, okay, uh, he's now thinking about what he needs to do. So he plans, he prays, and he plans. Verse, uh, second half of verse 7, he divided the people who were with him, the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, which is sort of an echo back to the two camps in verse 1, right? There was the angelic camp and his camp. Well, now he's having to do the two camps thing. If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. Jacob's always scheming. He's always taking the initiative. He's always thinking. He's always got a plan. It's not all bad. I actually think this is maybe a smart thing for him to try to figure out. Jacob said, Oh God, my father Abraham. So here's the prayer. That was the plan. Divide the camp up. And uh, you know, just, just think about how agonizing that would be as you split up the camp and you're, you're trying to minimize your losses. You're trying to minimize the carnage that your brother's going to cause. So the best you can come up with is 50%. 50% of what I've worked for and what I love is going to be gone. The best I can do is that the other could flee while these guys are hopefully holding on long enough that the other group can flee. This is, this is his best option. That if his brother comes to attack him, half his family, half his possessions are gone. That's, that's what he's facing. And he's like, that's the best I can do. I have to do the best that I can with what I have to work with. If his brother's really coming to attack. So that's what he does. He sets it up that way. Verse 9. Now comes the prey. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. 
For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have, come, I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is actually the first time that we have Jacob praying that I'm aware of. This is the first time. He now feels so trapped, he has no schemes. He has reached such a point of desperation now that he cries out to God, and it's actually a very, it's a very good prayer. This is a great prayer. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Let's see now the, the second part of his planning. So he gets done praying, this really fervent, heartfelt, he is afraid, he is terrified, and he has, he's pleading with God to keep his promise. He's pleading with God to be faithful and he's pleading with God to rescue him. And then he gets done. Amen. And here's the second part of his plan. So he stayed, the, stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 lamb, rams. 30 milking camels and their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Uh, just think for a moment. This is, Jacob can afford this. This is a lavish, this is a, this is a lavish gift to his brother, which just tells you how fabulously wealthy Jacob came out of the Laban. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. So he's got several waves of this level of gift that Esau's going to have to blast his way through to get to them. Just gift after gift, wave after wave, just to try to go, Maybe my brother, by the third wave, <laughs> will have his heart softened, that I'm really not here for war, that I'm really not here to tr trick or swindle him anymore. So he just is going to put everything he can into trying to change his brother's heart. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom you belong, where are you going, and what are these ahead of you, then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. Be honest. He's telling his servants, be honest. We're not doing the swindling thing anymore. They are a present sent to you, my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Again, he's going in honestly. Jacob is not trying to swindle this thing. He likewise instructed the second, the third, and all who followed the waves, the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps then he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So we've already talked about scheming Jacob, splits his stuff in half, trying to keep it to just a 50% loss. That's the best he can do. Waves and waves of gifts, generous, lavish gifts, in order to, in some ways, make atonement. You have almost atonement language here. I want to appease the wrath of my brother. I'm willing to make a sacrifice to appease the wrath of my brother, a propitiation, a reparation, so to speak. Let me pay you back what I've stolen from you. Verse 22, The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and sent and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And verse 24 says, Jacob was then left alone. So this is where, it, where it's at. Jacob's in the middle of the night. He's got all of this sort of arranged. He's done all of this planning and praying and planning. And now he is just by himself next to the river, sleeping by himself, totally alone. The, 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 
the fate of his life, the, the destiny of his life is about to happen in just a mere few hours. He may see the slaughter of his whole family, his, all, all of his children, everything. This could be it. This could be the last night. And he's got everything kind of settled where he needs it, and he is by himself by the Jabbok. We're going to come to what then happens in a moment. But before we do, before we do, I just want to take an application for just a few moments about Jacob's prayer in a stressful time. Because I think there's something important here. I think J- Jacob teaches us something about prayer in like just tremendous stress. I just want to point out a few principles here that I think are faithful. I think this is a good prayer by Jacob. And I think it gives us some indication. I, I think part of why this is the case is the original audience is Exodus, the Exodus Israelites who have come out of Egypt, and Moses is writing this down, telling them their family history, but he is putting together the stories and telling these stories because this is them. They're the children of Abraham. They're the children of Isaac. They're the children of Jacob. And so there are lessons to be learned from these lives that have gone before them. This is the same kind of conflicts that the Israelites are going to face. And so it's really important reminding God of past faithfulness to his family. Secondly, pray according to present command and promise to do good. That's the second thing he then prays. O Lord, who said to me, return, present tense, to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am trying to do the right thing here, God. You have made promises and commands to me, and I am going to hold on to them. So pray according to the present commands and promises to do good from God. Number three, pray on the basis of grace, not works. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed into this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So there's no why me. Why, God, are you putting me in this situation? Right? There's no why me. He's like, I have never deserved anything good from you, God, and you have given me nothing but good. And so I'm going to ask you for more good, because I'm actually probably getting what I deserve. And I would ask you, God, to not give me what I deserve right? Don't give me what I deserve. He's pleading on behalf of grace. He's acknowledging his unworthiness. His, his question is not, why me? It's like, oh God, please help me based on your grace, not my works. God, please don't take my works into account. I deserve nothing but wrath, but please, by your grace, you've been so gracious to me. Complete the grace, complete the gift, complete the promise. Number four, pray in humble, dependent, honest specificity. Look at what he says in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Just real specific. God, here's what I need from you. Not just sort of a generic, hey, keep us safe on our trip, right? No, God, please. Esau, you know, Esau, like look up the names of people that are on the earth. Esau, that's the one I'm concerned about, my brother. And there's what he says, for I fear him. God, I'm terrified. There's no super spiritual language. There's just like, I'm terrified, God. I am shaking. I... He is bigger than me. He is stronger than me. He is angrier than me. I, I, I need you to come through here. Humble, dependent, honest specificity. And then lastly, number five, pray based on future blessing. The forward-looking hope and faith of what God said he will do. Look at what he says, verse 12. But you said, I will, future tense, surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob, while he's planning... He isn't putting his trust in his plans. He's putting his trust in a God who has been faithful in the past, who has given him commands in the present, and has made assurances about the future. And none of those are because he earned it, but because of grace. So now he can enter, he can come before the throne of God, 
in confidence that God has revealed himself to him. And God has demonstrated what kind of God he is. So I think we, when we're in stressful situations, we have a template. We have a bit of a way to do this. So he prays, putting all his dependence and hope on God, and then he makes the wisest decisions he knows how to do. So prayer's not passive, right? He comes out of it and he makes real plans. He's not like just being, you know. So I think this is, I think this is honorable. I think this section of the, of the scriptures, we actually see Jacob for once, not going the swindling route, trusting in himself, but trusting in God and then making wise plans. I think it's good. I think it's good what's happening here. So there we go. Let's go to the second part of chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. Jacob wrestles with God. So first we have wrestling all night. Then we have injuring the hip. Then we have naming. A new name is given to Jacob. Then we have a blessing bestowed on Jacob. And then he walks away limping yet rejoicing. Okay? So let's walk through it together. Jacob wrestles with God. So, so just remember, this is the stat. This is the situation Jacob's in. He's next to the water. He's next to the river. He's just sent his family off like he is by himself. And this is the best he can do, and he has no, no idea how far away Jacob or Esau is. He has no idea when this thing is going to come, and he is all totally alone. He's done all he can. He's at his wit's end. This is as good as it gets. This might be the end right here. So look at this, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. What a weird thing. Middle of the night, it's on. Someone's all, you wake up to someone has you in a headlock. Like, this is weird. Jacob is attacked and wrestles all night. I don't know, if, is there any wrestlers? Anybody in here that was, wrestle, that was a wrestler? Wrestling is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just wrestling with my kids, it gets exhausting after like seven minutes, right? And uh, I like wrestling my younger kids. I don't like wrestling my older kids. I just declare victory and leave um, because uh, my older kids are getting too strong. But... Uh, but it's a, it's a full-body workout, and Jacob's not a young man, and he is in the fight of his life. Someone has attacked him in the middle of the night, and everybody's gone. Like, he doesn't have all of his people are off somewhere else. He is one-on-one -on -one with someone with a wrestling match of his life all night, all night. And if you just remember back to chapter 28, Jacob was alone sleeping when God appeared to him <laughs> with a, a ladder from heaven, a stairway from heaven. And that was a very gracious experience. This is not such a gracious experience. This is quite a different experience. Verse 25, the man that has attacked him saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. That's interesting. Jacob has so much stamina and energy and fight in him. And so this man touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So I'm guessing, I'm, I've never been a wrestler, but I'm guessing having a busted hip is bad. I, I can't imagine that you can do much of anything with an injured hip, a hip out of socket. So now Jacob, the swindler, the scoundrel, no more maneuvering, handicapped. He has to abandon his tenacious contriving. Like he's always been able to dodge and weave. He's always been able to move and manipulate. And now he's done. He, is, he has put all of his physical energy into this. And this man now, with a supernatural touch, doesn't say that he wrenched it, just says touch. With his touch. And I think Jacob at this point realizes, oh, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with something divine here. So it's fine. You know, I think it's, it's the graciousness of God that he would condescend. And whatever, whoever he's wrestling with, we'll get to that in a second, is, is at least letting Jacob fight him, right? But ultimately, whoever this is has supernatural power to go ahead and just like with a touch, like 
And Jacob's done. Like, his family's gone, his protection's gone, and now his physical strength is gone. Verse 26. Then he said, the man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So think about this for a moment. Jacob is, this is it, man. Like this is life and death now because he's about to be crippled alone on the banks of this river with his brother bearing down on him. Like, this is it. He's got one option. This, whoever it is that he's wrestled, has just demonstrated some sort of supernatural power. And Jacob's done. Like, he is done. He's got one option, and that is to cling to this one who seems to have supernatural power. He's got one shot. Is even this one who has wounded him is the only one who can get him out of this, right? He's the only one. And so I think in his desperation, he clings on to this one going, this is it. This is all I've got is to just hang on to this guy. I can't really fight him anymore because I'm broken, but I can hang on. And the man's like, let go of me. I got to get out of here. I got to go. The day is breaking. And Jacob's like, no, not until you bless me. There is something supernatural. There's something divine here. And uh, I am in such a desperate spot. You're all I have. This God, man, angel, person, whoever, escapes when Jacob is done, and Jacob is done. So while it seems like Jacob is winning... Uh, This other person has the power to sort of end the match immediately. His striving is over, his self-reliance is gone, and all that he has left is a tenacious insistence on grace. Give me a blessing. I need a blessing. I'm not letting go till I get a blessing. This almost reminds me of like, you remember that story, the 127 Hours movie of the guy that was out like rock climbing or hiking or whatever, and then a boulder fell on his arm for 127 hours, and then he reached a point of such desperation where he had to literally, with like a pocket knife, cut his arm off. I think that's sort of where Jacob is here. Of like, he's done. And he's got one option. And that is to cling to this supernatural person that he's been wrestling with and demand a blessing. This is it. He's done. The man knows Jacob, but Jacob has to be brought to confess who he is. Jacob must own and admit and confess to his own character. So I think that's what's happening when he calls on his name. Jacob, who are you? Who have you been? And he has to admit that his name, Jacob, the striver, the swindler, he has to admit who he is. This is who I am. This is who I have been. And it has brought me to the point of of just complete destruction, right? I've lost everything. And then the man graciously says, gives him a new identity, says, you will no longer be known as Jacob. That'll no longer be who you are, but Israel. Israel literally means one who strives with God, or it can also be translated God strives for him. It's really not clear just in and of itself, but I think because of the context of what is said next, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed, that that now your name will be known as the one who wrestles with God. And that's going to be kind of indicative of all of Israel's story. Like, they're just going to continually be in this interlocking conflict with God. Like, God is going to have to wound and, <laughs> and overcome their stubbornness again and again. He's going to continue to have to put their hip out of socket because they're going to be stiff-necked. And it's just like us. It's just like us. God has to kind of work all of the energy out of us before we're finally desperate enough to turn to him. And that's Israel. That's Jacob. 
But now he has a new identity. He has to admit who he is to this one, and then this one gives him a new identity. So then there's the blessing, verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Doesn't give him the name, which is fascinating. Doesn't give him the name. But there, right then and there, imagine how sweet this must be. This supernatural person that you've been wrestling with has now just sort of essentially ended the match, and you've just got, you're just hanging on. Like, you're essentially wise, but you can just cling. You can just sort of like, I can't let you go. You're my only hope. And then all of a sudden, there's sort of this turning face-to-face and maybe kneeling down to the crumpled Israel now, and maybe putting his hands on his head and giving him a blessing. The one that you have striven with, you've finally surrendered to, <laughs> and you just hear these sweet words of blessing that come down from the one who you thought was your enemy all this time is now turning around facing you and giving a gracious blessing that you don't earn, but you insisted that you must have, and he blessed him. Just sweet words there. What a sweet ending to a terrifying night, which then he walks away limping. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. Jacob's interpretation of the night is that he's been wrestling with God, and yet my life has been delivered you're not supposed to see God and live, and I wrestled with him all night, and I lived. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hymn. So he's just sort of got to drag himself now. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob now has a forever limp. He can't run. He is now put in a position where he can only trust. He, God has graciously put him in a position where he has exhausted all of Jacob's resources, all of Jacob's self-concocted strengths, all of his confidence in the flesh, zero, and graciously given him nothing but trust and a promise. And Jacob walks away, limping, yet rejoicing. This is symbolic, again, of Israel's whole history. They're going to be deeply stubborn and need to be hobbled into submission. <laughs> They're just going to choose every way but God's until he, God will be always the last resort for them. And so Israel is, is sort of the symbol. And for those early readers, those initial audience of this are going to go, yeah, that's us. <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah, it's because it's like your father, just like your father. And yet God is kind even in these wounds. Just ask, ask, let me answer this question. Who is he wrestling? In verse 1, we have the word, a man wrestled with God. I'm sorry, not verse 1, verse 24. It says a man wrestled him. Okay? Verse 25, the man isn't prevailing, yet has supernatural power to touch. So we get man, man, right there, verses 24, 25. 26, then we get the indication where he says, let me go, the day has broken. That's weird. You know, like if you're in the middle of this match and you're really trying to win, when the sun comes up probably doesn't matter that much. But if you're God... And to see your face and be destroyed, this seems to be an indication that there's something divine about this man. This seems to be confirmed in verse 30 where it says, I have seen God face to face, where Jacob himself recognizes that he has just had an encounter with God. So a man, yet God. And then if you go to Hosea chapter 12, Hosea, a prophet hundreds of years later, has commentary on this event. And here's what he says in Hosea 12, 3 through 6. In the womb, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel. So, so Jacob was a wrestler, like, pre-birth. 
was a wrestler, just always trying to get the upper hand even before he could breathe air, right? And Hosea is going to talk about how that's how Israel has been as well. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor, which tells you just how desperately he's holding on. He's not holding on to this angel, this God-man, in a way that he's like, yeah, I'm going to get him. But he's weeping, right? He's weeping and seeking a blessing. So this is a desperate, like, nothing left kind of clinging. So that helps us there. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. That's interesting. Words spoken to Jacob are as good as being spoken to us hundreds of years later. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So the commentary Hosea has for the Israelites hundreds of years later is, like Jacob, you are like this, yet God is like this, return to him. That's sort of the idea there. But in this, we get this sense that we've got kind of three answers to the question. Who is he wrestling, a man, God, or an angel? And I think that's about as far as we can go because that's what the Bible verses give us, right? God, man, angel, or messenger, an angel representing God. Uh, some even interpret this as the God-man Jesus Christ showing up in the Old Testament, which is maybe why he doesn't give a name, is that perhaps this is Christ appearing in the Old Testament. There's good theologians that think that maybe he's actually wrestling with Christ, Christ himself. And to some extent, you could go, well, yeah, he's a God-man who's also a messenger. Maybe, maybe, at least to some extent, it's an experience that I think in some ways... Um, parallels Christ. Jacob has been a supplanter since before he was born. Now in the place of desperation, in a close encounter with a God-man, he is stripped of his ability to supplant anymore. He's at the end of himself. The excuses are gone. The ability to dodge and pivot and move on his own are over. He's a crippled old man in the dark next to a river with wrath bearing down upon him for what he has done. And what happens is he clings with all his might to the only thing that he has left. He needs an undeserved blessing from a supernatural source, but that source has to be brought near enough to mean something. And this is his one shot. His opponent makes him own who he is. This in his helpless, desperate state blesses him at his moment of need, at his moment of desperation, and gives him a new name. It's almost like he's born again, right? with a new name. Born again, given a new name, starting a new life. Jacob will walk away defeated but blessed, broken but whole, victorious by and through weakness, and a new man with a new identity. And that sounds relatively similar to how we come to encounter Jesus Christ, is it not? That Jesus Christ comes and he deals with us. He deals with our stubbornness. And yet he gives us grace. Jesus, like this man, voluntarily becomes weak. There's an indication that this angel, this man, this God-man, whatever it is, could defeat Jacob. But he's letting himself absorb the strength of Jacob. He's voluntarily becoming weak and defeated that he might save, bless, and name. Which sounds like Christ, who took on our weakness, who bore our sin and our shame, that he might save, bless, and name. For the one who encounters Jesus, weakness then is the way. That's how Jacob is going to now have to move forward as Israel as one who is now weak. It sounds like the Sermon on the Mount to some extent. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? 
Christians don't move forward, the Jesus people don't move forward in, in physical power and cunning, but in weak dependence and faith and trust and prayer. And a strange joy that he's limping away from this river with a new, <laughs> with like a new disposition on life, right? It's almost like Jake, it's almost like the Esau thing has sort of faded from his mind because he's just spent time with God. All of his problems have just gotten right-sized compared to being saved by God. This is the first time Jacob has ever had a relationship turn out positively. You notice that? His relationship with his wives aren't necessarily positive. They're fighting each other. This is the first time he's ever had a relationship turn out positively, and it's with God. Now there's hope for all his other relationships. It took a work of God on him and in him. This was not something he could do for himself. In fact, he had to have himself and utterly, totally defeated before he could then enter into this grace and this blessing. And the same is true for us. God is calling us to deal honestly with where we've been and what we've done. To go ahead and just own our name, spiritually speaking. He must come and deal with us. He will wrestle us until we are finally weak enough to receive his grace. It is in weakness then that he meets us and blesses us and gives us a new name. Like I read before, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Once you've reached the end of yourself, now it's time. Because I am gentle and lowly of heart, you'll find rest for your souls. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Jacob's finally at a moment where he has nothing left but to be humble. Let's go into chapter 33. So then, so I, I guess then if I were to kind of tie a bow on that section there is that have, have you wrestled with Christ? Have you had the God-man draw near? And have you dealt really with who you are, who he is, and the fact that he became weak for you, and yet an incredible power has the ability to give you a new name if you will trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, clinging to him because he's all you've got. That's <clears throat> how we respond to Christ. Very quickly, we can get through this second chapter much more quickly. <clears throat> This is just such a critical passage to the Old Testament, so it's good to linger there. But Jacob reconciles with Esau. So surprising, a surprising thing happens in verses 1 through 11. We have first a humble approach of Jacob. A humble approach. Jacob approaches Esau with just tremendous humility and vulnerability. Look at verse 1, chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Put the servants with the children in front. That's a, you don't do that if you're going to go to war, right? Like you, the servants with the children in front. So this is scary. Then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all, his most prized son, that's going to come up later. If you're Reuben, you should, you should be thinking, I'm the firstborn. I should be in the back. If anyone survives, it's supposed to be me, but it's Joseph. That's going to play, that's going to play into uh, some situations later that Joseph is actually the prized one who's way at the back. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came to his brother, which is characteristic of that time of how you approach a king or even a pharaoh. You bow seven times as you approach his throne Verse 4, a surprising reaction. Now look at this, verse 4. You do not expect this because there's nothing in Esau that seems like he has any positive redemptive qualities in him at all. But this is remarkable. But Esau ran to meet him 
and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. It just stacks up all of these actions of Esau, just tremendous graciousness from Esau that we have never seen before. And interestingly, when Jesus gives his parable on the parable of the prodigal son, when the younger son runs away, and then when he starts to come home in great humility and desperation, the father runs out to him, and here's what it says the father does. I think Jesus is doing this somewhat. I think he's doing it intentionally. Look at what Luke 15, 20 says. He arose and came to his father, and while a still long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him, and kissed him. Isn't that interesting? Almost exactly what Esau does. It's just fascinating that <laughs> Jesus would tie the actions of God with the graciousness of Esau here. Now, this is not to say that Esau is saved. There doesn't seem to be any divine reconciliation between he and God here, but there is something, even in this man, that God has done for the sake of Jacob. And then look at celebrating grace. Look at verse 5 through um, five through 11, and notice how many times the word favor or grace comes up as Jacob describes what the last 20 years have been like. So they, they meet, they kiss, they reconcile, turns out we're not going to have a bloodbath here. Esau is actually uh, glad to see his brother and responded so graciously. And then just look at this and just look at Jacob. Now, Jacob, remember, in, when he was with Laban, he was doing like the poplar sticks, like superstitious stuff to try to get the lambs to breed. And his wives are competing for children. And then he's fighting over who owns the children with Laban. Like it's just all striving. It's all this is what I earned. This is my wages. This is what I deserve. His tone is so different here. Look at what it says, verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. He gives credit to God. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. A plea for grace. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I don't need your gifts. I don't need your presence. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So you don't receive gifts from an enemy. We saw that with Abraham early on. You don't receive gifts from an enemy. So this is important to Jacob that Esau received this gift. While Esau is doing the, nah, I've got enough. I don't need your stuff. Jacob's like, no, I need, I need something here. I need you to receive this gift from me, not as any sort of payment. I'm asking for grace. But would you receive my offering as, an, as, as a reality that we're no longer enemies? To receive, you only receive a gift from an ally. You don't receive a gift from an enemy. So please, I need this. This statement that we are no longer enemies. And Esau's like, okay, I will receive your gift. And he does. Favor or grace comes up four different times in this book, or in this little section right here, where Jacob is basing everything on grace. Everything on grace. No longer earning, but grace. Grace and generosity. Esau marvels at the productivity of Jacob, and Jacob gives credit to God's grace. Laban's never mentioned. His own schemes are never mentioned. 
This is not a bribe that he gives Esau, but a grateful response to his gracious response, his undeserved, uh, his undeserved reception of him. Jacob sees, interestingly, he says, seeing you is like seeing the face of God, which, considering what just happened the night before, Jacob is making a connection. The connection between his wrestling with God and this reconciliation with his brother. To wrestle and receive grace with God now, he sees a connection with, there has been a supernatural reconciliation with my brother. A right relationship with God led to a right relationship with his brother. He sees a connection there. The encounters with God and with Esau are two parts of the same event. To be reconciled with God and then not to make the effort to be reconciled to your brother is to deny <laughs> that you've been reconciled with God to some extent, right? He's seeing a connection between the two. Reconciliation between brothers is an outworking of reconciliation with God. Right relationship with God produces right relationship with brother. And what we find when he sees him and sees the face of God, that this was never really about Esau. This was about Jacob and God. This was about everything is theological. Everything. God's hands are in everything. Every decision, every event. It's all about how you react to God. And where is God in this situation? So just a tremendous celebration of grace from God and from his brother that he did deserve. Lastly, Jacob compromises his family. So it's going so well. And then we get to chapter 12, verse 20. And it just takes just a slight turn, and it's going to land in a place that we're going to resume next week that's going to be a real tragedy. So first we have a deceptive parting. So Jacob and Esau now, they've, they've caught up. They're caught up. They've had coffee together. They've, you know, exchanged gifts. Everything's sweet. Well, now what? Now where do we go? And look at this, verse 12. Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Let me, let me, let me take you. Let me take you to where we'll settle together. Verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds that are with me, if they're driven too hard for even one day, all the flocks will die. Come on. <laughs> You've just traveled all this way. No, no, we really can't do that. So he's, he's, he's hedging. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. I will follow you to the land of Edom. So he's giving this indication that, yeah, you go on ahead, we'll catch up. We have to take a lot of potty breaks. You know, you've been on that, right? You're on a caravan with some people, and some people are get there quick. That's me. Other people are like, oh, we're going to take our time, and, and uh, those people drive me crazy. So Jacob's like, I'm going to be the, we'll, we'll get there. We'll meet you there. So Esau takes off, and Jacob is going to lag a little back, giving a clear indication to his brother that he's going to follow him down to the land of Edom to his place. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau's like, well, let me give you a few people to help you on the journey since you're so weak and all. No, I'm good. So Esau returned that day on the way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. As soon as his brother got out of sight, he's like, I'm going the other way, which is probably wise to not go camp with his brother. But the way he goes about it is pretty deceptive. There's still a little Jacob in, Esau, in Israel. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which is interesting because the Israelites are going to camp in Succoth in booths. So it's sort of interesting that this, they're actually maybe reading this for the first time or hearing this story from Moses <laughs> while at Succoth in their booths. So it's interesting that, hey, we're right where our dad was at one point, but uh, he kind of lied to get here. So Esau wants them to stick together. Jacob insists on separating, but he isn't honest about it. Esau leaves. Uh, the promised land for Seir, for Edom. 
and will eventually become a great nation there. We'll see that. Uh, and they will become rivals for centuries. Edom and Israel become rivals for centuries. Succoth was a, is a significant place in the future. Like I said, they will dwell in tents there at one point, his descendants. And then a compromise settling. So if you read back through the story, it's pretty clear that God wants him to go into the nation of Israel. He wants him to go back to the promised land and to settle at Bethel. That was where he met him. He set up a memorial, right? Anointed it with oil, his pillow rock thing, the, where the, the, the ladder was, where the stairway was. It's pretty clear that that's what God is indicating. Go back to that spot. You put a rock so that you remember where it was. You're supposed to go settle in that place where my presence was. And Jacob only goes halfway. He goes to the city of Shechem. And so it's only a half obedience. It's a compromised settling. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, and when, which is in the, city of, in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces of money, for a hundred pieces of money, a piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And he erected an altar and called it El Alehi Israel. So there's some good. There's some good here. But he's not actually all the way obeying. He is compromising. And it's going to be awful because Shechem is going to do something very terrible to his daughter in the next chapter. And it's all because he doesn't quite follow through on his obedience. He sort of settles in a compromise. Hey, that's good enough. Some of God's commands are, are, are optional. I'm not going all the way to where I need to go. And he puts his family in terrible danger that's going to be absolutely devastating next week. So there's a little bit of an application in that. Half obedience is just simply not obedience. And God desires obedience, not sacrifice. Great, you built an altar. Appreciate that. It's better than building an altar to Satan, I guess. But I desire obedience, not sacrifice. And Jacob is not obeying like he's supposed to and thinking that he's fine by just offering a sacrifice. Again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So three burning questions as we close. We're right at the end here. And this is it. Question number one, have you wrestled with the God-man Jesus Christ? I asked that earlier. would encourage you to consider it again. We, like Jacob, want control of our lives. We want things to go our way, on our terms, according to our abilities. We want to do it. And we have to come to a place of such utter desperation before we turn, Right? We don't change until the pain of staying the same <laughs> is greater than the pain of change, right? And God graciously put Jacob in a position where the pain of staying the same was going to get him killed. So I'll cling. <laughs> I'll cling. I'll trust. God is so kind in this passage. He could crush Jacob physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He wounds, but not destroys him. He disciplines him, honors him, refines him. Jacob's aggressive, tenacious, calculating initiative is not eliminated, but redeemed. I think a similar thing happens in the New Testament with Saul. Saul is so zealous to murder Christians and imprison them. And then when God flattens him, infirms him, really probably for the rest of his life with an eye problem, perhaps, he has to humble this man, but he doesn't take away his tenacity, right? We see that happening again and again. Where a limp may not be a bad thing. God's wounding might actually slow down our sin, slow down the damage we can create. One guy named Andrew Bonar, who uh, tells a story 
In the highlands of Scotland, sometimes sheep wander off among the rocky crags and get trapped on dangerous ledges. Attracted by the sweet grass, they leap down 10 or 12 feet to get it, but they can't get back up. The shepherd will often allow the helpless animal to remain there for a few days until it becomes so weak it can't stand up. Finally, he ties a rope around his waist and goes over the edge to the rocky shelf and rescues the one that is strayed. Someone asked Bonar, why doesn't the shepherd just go down right away? He replied, sheep are so foolish that they would dash right over the precipice and be killed if the herdsman did not wait until their strength was all gone. Oh, that's so much how the shepherd works with us. And don't begrudge that. It's for your good. Derek Kidner says this, The great encounter with God came when Jacob knew himself to be exposed to a situation totally beyond him. The threat of it had already driven him to prayer, and both his renewed desire to be alone and the form of the night struggle took uh, indicate now a hunger for God, a hunger which was awakened by crisis but not determined by it. So have you wrestled with the God-man Jesus Christ? Secondly, have you faced and made peace with your past? God has a pattern of forcing us to face up with our past, even when it's painful and scary. Forces us to deal with the past and deal with those that we've wronged. Reconciliation is scary and difficult. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against him, but he has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Stop your worship. Stop it. Stop. Stop your worship. Go. Be reconciled first to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So this is New Testament stuff as well. Reconciling with those that you can. Sometimes we find with Jacob our fears are scarier than reality. It turns out that God had been working in Esau. <laughs> God had really paved the way, and so the scariest thing in the world, actually, God worked for good. God often works in the hearts of your enemy. And number three, are you living half-hearted and compromised before God? Just as the chapter leaves us here, and it's about to lead into a really devastating couple of chapters, is there areas of your life where there's just half-hearted obedience, or sort of a compromised obedience, because it's hard, because it's going to take some effort. So it's easier to just sort of settle here, but it's a dangerous place to be sort of half-obedient. So is there something that we can learn from this Jacob story about that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this passage. It's a, a lot that's here and really significant to the Bible. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to take to heart uh, some of the things that are in this passage. There's probably a hundred things that we could take and apply to our lives. And maybe we just need to take one. Maybe we don't need to try to take them all, but just one. So, Lord, I pray that even now you'd be convicting our hearts um, of sin, of ways that we see ourselves in the story and God, I pray that you would also be comforting maybe those who are in the midst of affliction and just need to know that you are near and that you are working in ways that they can't see. So God, uh, comfort those who need comfort. And God, I pray that you would unsettle maybe those ways in our lives where we're sort of half-hearted in our obedience. God, get, us our, atten get our attention uh, graciously <laughs> before we make a mess of things in ways that we don't understand. Um, that maybe our half hearted and compromised obedience is actually putting our own families in danger, as we're going to see in the next chapter. So, Lord, I pray that we would not just think about ourselves, but think about our relationship with you and how that actually affects others as well. God, we need your grace. We thank you that you are quick to give it. In Jesus.
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.